Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, how is post-Brexit Britain handling migration? Immigration and free movement were such a huge part of the conversation around Brexit. And don't get me wrong there, I'm certainly not saying it was the only motivator for the UK leaving the European Union, but it was an undeniable part of the Brexiteer strategy and was often cited by voters who were looking to get their sovereignty back. What has happened then in the five years since that vote? The Good Information Project over the past few weeks has been focusing on the European Union's current migration issues, how it's going to handle the Afghanistan crisis, for example, while trying to sign off on a pact on how to deal with irregular migration into its member states. The EU and the UK are still navigating the issues that led to what was dubbed the migrant crisis back between 2010 and 2016. With free movement between the EU and the UK, with the exception of Ireland obviously because of the common travel area, ceasing on the 31st of December 2020, what impacts have been seen? As we'll be most likely talking about with our guests, the figures are difficult to come by when we talk about migration numbers and jobs in the UK. But pre-pandemic, a significant percentage of low-skilled factory and construction jobs were held by EU-born workers as were factory and machine operating jobs and jobs in food preparation. Has making it more difficult for new EU citizens to take these jobs had an effect on these industries than having knock-on impacts on the availability of goods and services. Brexiteers are saying goods shortages and lorry driver shortages are not the fault of Brexit. But what's the real story? I'll be getting to these types of questions with my guests from the Good Information Project team, Gronini A and CJ McKinney. But first, Project Manager Brian Whelan is back to let us know what his team have been up to in the last few weeks. Brian, tell us a little bit about this most recent cycle of the Good Information Project. So this most recent cycle of the Good Information Project, uh, looking heavily at migration, EU policy and Irish policy and migration coincides also with the situation in Afghanistan, Afghan migrants fleeing to Europe, clashes at the Polish border, the situation in the UK with the shortage of HGV drivers post-Brexit. So we've had quite a lot to look into. We've also had quite a lot of very nice stories back from the audience um, as part of the, the feedback process where they told us about times that they've either had to leave Ireland because of economic necessity, um, but people have also been telling us about why they have moved to Ireland and their experiences. And a lot of that has actually been broadly very positive as well, which um quite nice to hear. Yeah, we're an island of immigrants and an island of immigrants. And then just before we get into the full conversation, what's coming up next for the Good Information Project? So the next thing we're going to look at is climate change. And we're going to be doing that to coincide with the Climate Summit in Glasgow, which is coming up at the start of November. Hopefully as part of that, People will reach out, as they always do, and give us their questions or talk to us about disinformation around climate change or tell us what specifically they think we should focus on. Also, we should be providing people with an opportunity to actually come along and meet us in real life for the first time. COVID, we haven't been able to do that. But if you sign up for the Good Information Project mailing list, which you can find on any Good Information Project article on the website, then you might be able to hear about that early and come see me somewhere, which would be a nice treat. 
It'll be a really nice treat and looking forward to it. The Good Information Project out in the real world. I'd usually say goodbye to you at this point, but actually you mentioned that you are in London and some of this ties in with your experience this week because um, you have been back and forth to England quite a lot recently. Have you seen the impact of supply chain problems in supermarkets? Like what's, what's it actually like there at the moment? Yeah, Sinead, so I have been uh, back and forth between Dublin and London over the last few months increasingly it's becoming very noticeable yesterday i went to my local supermarket and easily four or five of the shelves were completely bare if you go to the supermarket with something in mind i went to the supermarket to buy a red cabbage it just might not be there and maybe this was what it was like to live in uh, the soviet union towards the end during food shortages but it feels very unusual to not be able to go to the supermarket with a thing in mind and you just have to go and see what's there and pick up what you can get. And then also there's sort of an illicit trade in like WhatsApp messages and Instagram stories where people trying to tell each other which petrol station around London actually has petrol at the moment. So it seemed overblown from afar when I was in Dublin, but now that I'm here, it is very real. And people are sort of just have just adapted to it. People have just, okay, well, this is the new reality. You can't get what you want in the supermarket and you have to phone four or five, six people to figure out where there's petrol. And CJ, you're living over there as well. Are you seeing and experiencing the same? Yeah, up to a point. I mean, maybe not to the same extent as Brian. I've been back and forth between London and Edinburgh, and I haven't seen it as much in Scotland. But in London, yeah, absolutely empty shelves. The big supermarket had no milk one morning, which was really weird. I'd say for me, it's been more minor inconveniences, but still inconveniences all the same. Yeah, not having milk in a supermarket in a morning is a very <laughs> strange experience in 2021, I'd say. Absolutely. And before we look at kind of what's causing those problems, I do want to chat more generally to you about migration in post-Brexit Britain. It's something that you've been doing a lot of work for, for the Good Information Project and um, have a lot of really nice detail in your articles for the for that. Um and I just will split it down into a few elements for our listeners today. What's the situation for any EU or even non-EU citizen who wants to live and work in the UK right now? Oh, they need a visa. And that's the same now for people from EU and non-EU countries. So everyone's under the same system, except for Irish people, as you identified earlier. But everyone else, if you want the sort of standard work visa, it is only for jobs above a certain skill level. You know, people get kind of offended when you start talking about low-skilled jobs versus high-skilled jobs, but it basically means, do you need the equivalent of your leaving cert to do this job? And if the job is not classified at that skill level or higher, you just can't get the visa. So, you know, that's now the main work route into the UK, and it really doesn't cater for these so-called low-skilled jobs. And can you give us an example of what they put as a, a low-skilled job or a high-skilled job? A lorry drivers are not considered skilled, so there is a massive shortage, as we know, uh, but you can't get a normal work visa for that. So they are trying to bring in sort of emergency temporary visas to try and get around that. But the kind of standard work pathway into the UK for EU citizens and non-EU citizens doesn't cater for this role that's in, in really high demand and is commanding really high wages because of the shortage, but because of the skill classification, it doesn't qualify. As someone who hates driving, I absolutely rate <laughs> lorry driving as an extremely high skill job. Just on just on another technical question, do you have to have a job before getting a visa or can you just have the qualification or the experience and then go and look for work? 
no, you have to have a job offer. So that's, again, very different to how it would have been for EU citizens pre-Brexit. And of course, how it still is for Irish people. You have to have an employer who will sponsor you and has already offered you the job. Once you have a job offer, then you can apply for your visa. So there's absolutely no wandering in and looking for work, picking up a, a low-skilled job uh, anymore. You, If you want to get a work visa, you have to be sponsored. A lot of people would know the American system, you know, you have to get a sponsor and that the American system is quite difficult to break through into. So is this proving in any way attractive to people within the EU that they are like, actually, yeah, look for a job in the UK and then move there after all of this kind of red tape is done with? Well, we kind of don't know how it's playing out, right? Because this only came in from the 1st of January this year. That was when Brexit actually kicked in free movement of workers from the EU ended, but it, it continued right up to that point, despite the negotiations and the transition period and all that. So we do now have some figures for work visa applications from EU citizens just for the first six months of the year of 2021. Uh, and they're really low, like hardly anyone's been applying, but there's also been a pandemic on, right? There was a free movement ended on the 1st of January. There was a lockdown imposed on England on the 4th of January. There's been restrictions and, and lockdowns for much of 2021. So it's kind of too early to say what the impact of the visa rules is as distinct from the effect of the pandemic. And what about for EU residents who were already in the UK before Brexit? What situation did they face? Well, they're much better off than people who are looking to come in for the first time. So if you were living in the UK before that cutoff date that you mentioned, uh, 31st of December 2020, you could apply for permission to stay long term. Uh, it's called the EU Settlement Scheme. And it's not perfect from the perspective of you know campaigners and uh, EU citizens, lobby groups and so on, because you do have to apply, right? It's not automatic that you're permission to stay gets rolled over from pre-Brexit. So if you didn't know about the scheme, you know, you're up the creek, that there's some small minority of people who've been rejected, maybe they have criminal offences or whatever. But, you know, almost everyone who did apply has been accepted. So it's millions and millions of EU residents who still have the right to live and work in the UK despite Brexit. There was a sort of a soft deadline for those applications, which was the 30th of June, 2021. But people can still apply today if they had good reason for missing that soft deadline. So it's still actually possible to apply. And do they have to prove that they were there last year or could they possibly have moved over quietly and then applied for it? Yeah, if any kind of evidence of residence before the 31st of December 2020 pretty much gets you in, uh, you, you'll get a five year permission to remain and then uh, you can upgrade to permanent residence uh, after five years. So yeah, you could really have rocked up pretty much any time before that deadline and, uh, you know, got some kind of proof of address and got yourself in the system. So there probably will have been some people who maybe did that, got in under the wire, as it were. Some other people who maybe don't live in the UK at the moment, but did in the past, they could also apply to sort of hedge their bets. There's quite a lot of people who will be living, you know, back in their home EU country uh, who could still return to the UK. You know, maybe they went home for the pandemic or whatever. And you mentioned that it, the numbers are in the millions. Do we have any proper data yet on how many people did actually apply? 
Yes. And, you know, when you talk about proper data for the British uh, migration and population statistics, they're, they're generally quite ropey. But these ones we do know about because everyone had to apply, right? So there's, a, there's a record. By the 30th of June deadline, 5 million people have been accepted under the settlement scheme so far. There's more hundreds of thousands of pending applications to work through. And as I said, you can still apply despite the, the soft deadline. So more people still to come. You're probably looking at between five and six million people all in will be given this post-Brexit right to stay. And that's that's mostly EU citizens, but you also get their family members, right? So if, if you're French and your husband is from Ghana and you're both living in the UK, then the husband gets to stay as well under the scheme. And have we any data or do we know if EU citizens left the UK after the Brexit voter after uh, the 31st December 2020? Well, the data for UK population movements and migration is pretty ropey and I won't bore you with the details of why that is, but they've always been a bit notorious. Uh, is the key point, which is kind of ironic, when, right, when you consider how important migration is politically, but actually all the, the numbers are kind of all over the place. So we don't know exactly what's been ha- what's happened since the Brexit vote in terms of EU citizens leaving, but we can be confident enough about the broad trend, which is that since that Brexit vote, which was June 2016, there's been a bit more emigration and a lot less immigration. So Overall, the EU population in the UK has still been increasing, but it's been increasing at a slower rate than before. And I said a bit more emigration. It really doesn't seem like there has been a big exodus of EU citizens kind of leaving in their droves. I spoke to some experts at Oxford University about this, and they basically said, no, there there really hasn't been a Brexitus insofar as we can tell from these that's not to say that, you know, there aren't many people who did. You hear lots of individual stories about people who felt that they, you know, didn't feel welcome or had, you know, economic reasons to go home to Poland or whatever it might be. But it, it doesn't seem to add up, you know, in this context of a huge population of millions, it doesn't seem to add up to a, a massive outflow. Yeah, so people were worried that, like, the there was an unwelcome feeling in the UK for people who weren't British, um, but that hasn't played out in people leaving or it hasn't been there hasn't been evidence of it yet, I guess, is the main takeaway point. Yeah, I don't think you could point to the data and say that that it really backs up those concerns. As I say, you know, you can you can take and choose like in the article I mentioned the, the sort of the best available figures that we have that the experts think are right and they only show a small decrease in emigration but you can actually you know you can actually look at the uh, population uh, estimates which do show the EU population going down and now the experts think those aren't as good as the figures we use so the, you know I, I think it, it is probably right to say that there hasn't been a Brexitus but you know you because the figures are a bit up in the air you can you can find figures that will uh, support the narrative of Brexitus uh, the experts just think that that's not quite right yeah it's really hard to make policy when you don't have some of these figures available and it is some of the interesting findings from your work for the good information project that we just don't have some of that information available to us So we've been talking about EU citizens there for the last few minutes, and we obviously are EU citizens in Ireland, but we're not the EU citizens that you're talking about because there are different rules for Irish people in the UK. Is that correct? 
Oh yeah, we're we're special. Irish people can just come to the UK freely the way we always have. That is, I mean, it's always been the case really, but it's now written explicitly into the UK's immigration legislation as well, uh, which is really helpful. So none of this visa business, none of this business of needing to apply to the EU settlement scheme to stay either it's uh, as you were common travel area, happy days. Yeah, so there's none of that five-year right to, to be here and then get permanent residencies, just Irish people, the status quo has remained. You can get on a plane and get a job there at any stage, at any time. Exactly. And I mean, under UK immigration laws, which God help me, I know uh, all too much about, you are, you're considered, Irish people are considered to have permanent residence from the moment they set foot in the UK, basically. So it's a really liberal regime when it comes to Irish people but the rest of the world it's it's visas and it's expensive and it's a faff. Yeah other than the visas and the faff at the start how difficult or easy is it for an EU citizen to live and work in the UK are there other things that have changed in their lives? Well you mentioned that people feel unwelcome perhaps and there is you know there are surveys of EU citizens where people say you know they are more likely to leave they feel differently uh, about the country. So there's that kind of psychological element to it, I suppose. But the main thing then would be uh, the visas, you know, because pre-Brexit, it was it was free movement. You could just come. And with the visa system now, unless you were an existing resident, you do need to have a job lined up already. Uh, you've got these complicated rules. And visas are really expensive as well. I think a lot more expensive than in Ireland. Um, it'll cost you uh, several grand. There's a tax on visas of 600 quid a year, which goes to the health service. They call it the health surcharge, which is really just a tax on visas. So that's 600 plus quid a year on top of the application fee, uh, which is a grand and a half, I think. So it, it really mounts up. And as I say, we don't know yet what the impact of all this has been in terms of the figures because the pandemic has, has gotten in the way of it. But you would expect the number of EU citizens migrating to the, to the UK to come down in future, given all that. £600 a year is really quite lofty if you're talking about at least five years for an EU citizen before they get their permanent residency. £624 a year, I think, is the fee. And that's on top of all the other things then employers are charged to hire foreign workers as well there's if you want to get a decision on your visa in a reasonable amount of time you pay a premium amount so that that's one thing that's uh, you know eu citizens and companies that hired them just never had to deal with before they were totally kind of carved out of the immigration system and you know non-eu citizens have always had to deal with this and always complained uh, and you know it's i mean the other thing is there will be the sort of harsh rules on deportation if you commit a criminal offence uh, will apply to EU citizens as well. People may agree or disagree on on how easy it should be to be deported uh, if you've if you've committed a crime, but it was a lot harder to deport people under the EU free movement pre-Brexit rules. So again, you would probably expect there to be more uh, EU citizens kicked out in future for you know relatively petty offences. And what about the other side of the road, people from the UK who want to move to European member state countries? Um, how easy or difficult is it for them to get a visa or the right to work and live in other countries in the EU? It'll depend country by country, really. So it's, it is, you know, what's sauce for the goose, the sauce for the gander. EU citizens need visas to come to the UK and same for Brits who want to work in France or Germany or Italy, wherever it might be. It'll depend on the rules for that country. 
you know, what one way this has come up is for British uh, bands who want to go on tour in the EU, they need work visas potentially to just to play paid gigs. And, you know, there's a big fuss earlier in the year when they realized, oh, hang on, we, we need to work out the work visa situation in, in all the EU countries we might want to tour in, right? So if you want to go from Belgium to the Netherlands to France to Spain to play a series of gigs, if you're a, a up and coming band or whatever, you or your manager now needs to work out, okay, we mightn't actually need work visas for this in the Netherlands, what we do in Belgium. Um, so it's it's a whole thing, and that'll be replicated for lots of industries um, and lots of people who who no longer have that freedom just to float around Europe. Yeah, I don't think it's a situation that many people foresaw in 2016. Grania, you've obviously been forensically examining Brexit for a number of years now, and obviously we've had you on the explainer a lot talking about it. Is this type of situation, you know, HGV driver shortages, uh, shelves not being fully stocked in supermarkets, this chat about uh, low-skilled workers needed in the UK, is this the type of situation you expect to see? Honestly, no, because I thought that it would have been foreseen and that the big mammoth that is bureaucratic mammoth that is the British government would have been able to tackle it. The UK is a really powerful country and it has a lot of resources and its civil services renowned around the world. So I really thought that all that considering and how expected, how many experts warned of this, that it wouldn't happen. You know, when the migration plan that the UK announced earlier this year was announced and all the details came out, people had concerns about key workers in the care sector and, you know, in um, food processing. So I thought that because it was well flagged that the British government would be able to deal with it, we wouldn't be in this kind of situation. That being said, the way the British government has reacted to the crisis of saying, you know, there, it, there isn't one to start off with and then, oh, it's not to do with Brexit and oh, it'll all be fine is also very much from the Brexit playbook. And that sounds very familiar to me, all right. Yeah, is the root cause of all of these shortages, what CJ and Brian were talking about, seeing at various levels of extremes um, in their supermarkets, is the root cause Brexit? Empty shelves are a hard thing to, to gauge, because if you ask the supermarket, they'll probably say there are no shortages, or they might say there are some difficulties we'll resolve. It's really, really difficult to gauge what causes empty shelves. You know, there was a photo going around of an empty shelves in uh, a supermarket in Brussels that people were using to say it's not to do with Brexit, the shortages in the UK. But there was a workers strike on in that shop. So that's why those there were empty shelves there. So it's really hard. That being said, if you look at the UK and the shortages, if you look at Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK, and is under the protocol, if you look at other parts of the EU and you ask if the UK was still in the EU, would we see empty shelves? Would we see uh, fuel shortages in the UK? The answer would probably be no, because, you know, the evidence when you compare and contrast to other regions and other countries is that's not an issue that they're dealing with. And you mentioned there that the British government initially kind of denied that this had anything to do with Brexit or denied that there was even a crisis in the first place. What have they been doing since to try and alleviate uh, some of the issues that people are seeing day to day? So they announced that the army would get involved. And what would happen was they would 
plug a gap, basically, you know, while they got more drivers on stream. Training to become a HGV driver takes a lot of time. It's a highly regulated job. It's a highly regulated industry because if you're dealing with 44 tonnes of metal and 800 litres of diesel or whatever, that's a powerful thing and you can't do it lightly. So those, because the army would need training, they also announced a three month visa to recruit what they hoped would be 100,000 drivers. Now, there is an issue with that in the sense that when you offer visas to people, they're not just, you know, someone plugging a gap, they have their own lives. So a lot of the drivers that would have worked in the UK said that three months is not enough. It is not lucrative enough. It is not worth my while relocating or or doing work short term in somewhere like the UK. And last I checked, I checked on Wednesday um, of the 100,000 drivers that they hoped to recruit, they've received less than 100 applications so far. So it proves that it's kind of a a policy that doesn't work, to put, put it lightly. The First Minister of Wales had a really interesting kind of quote on this, you know, much closer to home that it's, you know, it's hard to imagine a government that has made a more derisory attempt to solve a problem of their own creation. The idea that people will be willing to uproot themselves and come back to work for this country for a matter of weeks, only to be told by the UK government they'd be discarded again on Christmas Eve when we no longer had use for them. It simply isn't going to work. You know, so that kind of sums it up. Yeah. And the HGV driver shortage is more widespread than just the UK, which I presume complicates the matter too as well. Like CJ was saying, if you're a Polish driver, you can just go to Germany and get a job if you did want to go somewhere else to make some more money. So this is an issue outside of the UK as well. Definitely. Uh, The EU is discussing this issue as a Europe-wide issue. Uh, The US has also uh, been dealing with this issue. So it's definitely more widespread than just a, you know, post-Brexit Britain issue. But that being said, it is kind of a confluence of different issues. You know, the pandemic has been huge for people in kind of reassessing how they make they make their living. Anyway, you add that onto HGV drivers from maybe different countries who are in an environment that isn't uh, kind of their, their best quality of life. Uh, and they might decide to... Uh, relocate to where they're from. Added to that, though, as well, is the working conditions for HGV drivers. You know, it's not a high, highly skilled job, but it is quite integral to the market force. And as we've become more globalized, it's become more and more important um, to be on time and there's more pressure on those drivers. But, you know, even though they have to take a certain amount of rests per day, and per week and all of that, there's not great facilities for those drivers. There's not great uh, showering or toilet or canteen facilities at stop offs. And that is also not just a UK problem. That is a global problem. That's part of the reason why we're seeing shortages added to the fact as well that they don't have um, it's not a very social job. CJ, we've been talking about the lorry shortage since the start of this episode. In what er other areas could we start to see issues with the UK's attractiveness to migrant workers? Social care would be a big one. What I mean by social care is like people looking after elderly and disabled people, that kind of day-to-day work of helping people bathe and cook food and so on. It's really, really vital, especially with an aging population and that sector 
has relied really heavily on EU workers. And now any new staff that they might want to hire, they just won't qualify for visas at all for the that standard work visa. Because again, being a day-to-day social care worker is not uh, c- categorized as uh, a sufficiently skilled uh, occupation. But not just social care, there's all sorts of industries now are kind of following in the the lorry driver's lead, right? They're lobbying the government furiously for their own special visa scheme like the HTV drivers. So you've got restaurants, you've got farmers, you've got all sorts of industry bodies saying, hang on, we're totally screwed here. We're also trying to recover from the pandemic. Can you not give us a break? How about about our own special scheme? And are those special schemes attractive enough for EU workers, like, you know, the three months for HGV drivers? Well, time will tell. I think the early indications are that there was 300 spots available for fuel tanker drivers, specifically in the very short term because of the fuel problems. And those uh, had not been taken up, only, I think, 120, I think I heard the other day. Um, And that was... You know, I, I think possibly a function of it being quite last minute, but also you're being brought in just for uh, a few weeks, really, by the time you get the paperwork sorted. Uh, and that's not a particularly attractive offer, particularly when, you know, there's shortages all over. And it's, it might be a lot easier if you're a Polish uh, driver and there's shortages in Germany. Well, you, you might just go and get a job in Germany. It's much easier much easier and, and less visa problems despite these problems that are it is causing in the immediate term and the ones that are playing out in in front of you there in in england and in edinburgh is this what the current uk government actually wants post-brexit immigration to look like yes so the the uk government's policy whether you agree with it or not it's been really consistent on this up until they <laughs> created this exemption for the large drivers but what they've been saying for quite a while is that these sectors, they've got a lot of labor shortages, uh, like restaurants and large drivers and so on. They're saying these sectors have become hooked on migrant labor, you know, addicted to it. And what they need to do instead is improve paying conditions, and then they'll attract more workers from the domestic workforce. So British people, Irish people, migrants already settled. And the question always was, well, okay, you can say that all you like, but what happens when the rubber hits the road and the business lobby really starts, you know, hitting you hard for exemptions? And the government has already caved in from what I think was a pretty clear policy by giving these exemptions for lorry drivers, also to workers in the poultry industry, that's like chickens and turkeys and stuff, because they're worried about not having that available for Christmas Day. So they're now back to saying, oh, no, well, you know, we've had exemptions for those sectors, but nobody else is getting special visas for this low skilled work. We really, really mean it this time. But, you know, I wouldn't bet against there being some more exemptions in the coming months as shortages start to bite in other areas. Yeah. And if there's exemptions under this government, could these things dramatically change under future governments? Potentially, yeah. The Labour Party, the opposition, has said that there'll be no return to free movements, but it's perfectly possible to negotiate a migration deal with the EU that isn't full-on free movement, but that opens up quite a lot. They certainly wouldn't call it free movements. They probably wouldn't call it migration. They might call it a mobility framework, something like that. For example, you could do quite a wide-ranging youth mobility scheme um, where people under 30 can come to the UK uh, and work for a couple of years. That's already in place for like Australians and New Zealanders and stuff. 
So that could be specific to EU citizens just to get young people in to work in the bars and restaurants that are, that are struggling. Or you could, you could loosen up the entire work visa system that I outlined earlier, that standard work visa that's based on skill. You could allow employers to sponsor workers regardless of skill level, maybe if, if they're paying up to a certain salary. So that would, you know, that wouldn't be specific to EU citizens, but it would make it a lot easier to come to UK for work. And there's no reason a future government couldn't just do that. So uh, plenty you could do to allow more post-Brexit migration from the EU if the political will is there to do it. And the name changes are uh, politically friendly enough. <laughs> oh, no harm to do a bit of uh, PR of these things and make them sound uh, non-threatening. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thanks so much, CJ and Grania and Brian for coming into the explainer. And uh, thank you for all of the information from the Good Information Project and good luck with the next cycle on climate change. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Brian, CJ and Gronia for joining us. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by producers Nikki Ryan and Aoife Barry. The Good Information Project is co-funded by Journal Media and a grant programme from the European Parliament. The European Parliament has no involvement in nor responsibility for the editorial content published by the project. Thank you and catch you next time.